Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes these words. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As we look at those words, it's a little bit awkward because Peter's talking to the elders, he's talking to the shepherds of the church, and I'm one of those, and so it can be a little self-serving. He's giving instruction for how elders ought to behave, and uh, I guess I have a vested interest in going softly over those things. So I don't want you to compare me too harshly in light of the ideals that Peter puts forth, but it's important, I think, to recognize uh, every let's say every aspect, every facet of the church that Peter addresses. We've seen him already in chapter 3 talking about relationships within families, relationships in uh, the larger world, and now he's talking about relationships in the church and how those ought to be run, how they ought to work. And there's really just three simple questions that I want us to think about as we look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. First one is this, do we need leaders... Secondly, if we do, then what kind of leaders do we need? And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, how are we going to follow those leaders? Do we need leaders? What kind of leaders do we need? And how are we going to follow? Well, do we need leaders? Do we need leaders in the church? Do you need a leader in your faith? The obvious answer would seem to be no. If you think about what Christianity is all about, Isn't it about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Your personal relationship with Christ, and that's between you and Jesus, right? That's nobody else's business. The rest of us are all outsiders where that is concerned. And if that is indeed all that Christianity is about, then the idea of having other people come in and and, and lead you and guide you may seem unnecessary. And I think we have certain cultural biases, tendencies of thought that that would help reinforce this as the obvious answer, that we don't need leaders. First of all, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we value youth much more highly than we do age. Peter addresses elders. He exhorts elders. He says, submit to elders. But he's speaking, when he speaks to us, to people who don't find that a natural thing to do. Because when we think of Youth and age, well, we prefer youth. For us, getting older doesn't mean getting better. We don't see ourselves as like fine wine. Instead, getting older just means getting more out of touch. 
right? And you see this repeated over and over again, the way that we talk about ourselves, the way that we depict older people, the way that we depict our parents, uh, primarily, like, they don't understand the world. The world is changing too quickly for elders to keep up with, for them to even understand. The energy, the vitality, the understanding is all on the other end of the spectrum with youth. Youth, change, innovation, disruption. These are better in our eyes than age, tradition, maturity, consistency. To us, those things seem a little boring. On a personal level, we no longer believe in the wisdom of our parents. If you suddenly realize that you're making the same kind of choices that your parents did, you're saying the same kind of things to your children that they said to you, that feels like failure. It doesn't feel like you've, you've matured. It feels like, oh no, I'm repeating the same cycle as before. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm falling back, as it were. I'm losing my edge. On a public basis, it's not just that we don't believe in the wisdom of our parents, but we also don't believe in the wisdom of our past. We're not trying to sort of go back in time and, 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 and cling to the truths that we once held dear. Our focus is on the future. Because things are changing so quickly that, that the past feels irrelevant. As if it doesn't have much to say to us. And if that's true, if we value youth over age, if it leads us to, to be dismissive of what's gone before, you can understand why a call to uh, look to the elders might feel a bit counterproductive. But there's another tendency that we have that I think leads us to feel that we don't need leaders. It's that we value individuality over authority. Think of it this way. Um, Self-expression is good. Conformity is bad. The idea of being yourself, being an individual, being original, being unlike anyone else who has ever gone before, that's virtuous. That's an ideal to aspire to. Whereas just conforming, just, you know, checking the boxes, yes, I believe all the things I'm meant to believe, uh, that seems, I don't know, stultifying, like claustrophobic. Like nobody wants to conform to a type any longer. We aspire to originality. Don't put me in a box. Nobody can know your path. Your path is up to you to find for yourself. There are no guides along the way to point to it. It's to you to find. The idea that your beliefs, that your deeply held beliefs about the nature of reality need to conform to whatever happens to be written in some ancient book or to whatever happens to have been summarized from that book by a bunch of dead white guys who wore ruffles and buckles in their shoes, it seems a little silly. Why? Why would we strive to conform in that way? It's easier for us to admit to being heterodox than it is to admit to being orthodox. I hear people often boasting that they're heretics. I never hear people boasting that they're not. As a consequence of these biases, I think you see kind of uh, these things working out in the way that we do church, the way that we think about church. It's the reason why we talk a lot more about your personal journey 
than we do about Christian orthodoxy. I've made this observation before that uh, one of the most shocking things to me when I really started reading the Bible and studying the Bible was how different what the Bible talks about is than what my pastors talked about. All of the sermons that we heard were about how to live successful lives, how to be happy, how to get God's blessing in your life, stuff like that, kind of self-help stuff. Uh, When I was younger, constantly being bombarded by God's Christian principles for dating, that sort of thing, how to, to live a good life, all of that. And then you start reading the Bible, and it's completely different. Like the cares and concerns of the authors of Scripture are so different from that, so... Uh, I would argue, more elevated than that. Well, why is there such a difference? Why is there such a difference between reading your Bible and going to church and hearing sermons? It's because we're more focused on you, on your personal journey, your originality. The language of evangelical Christianity has become very therapeutic, very self-help. Also, Although the church does have leaders, it does have uh, figureheads, our leaders don't so much guide you as they do reflect you. I'm trying to explain what I mean. Um, So a few years ago, I had this opportunity to talk to someone who'd been an insider in the the early days of this megachurch. And so when you're in somebody's presence who's had this experience that you've never had, you always ask questions like, like, what did you do? What What worked? You know, and secretly, I was hoping that there was something really simple and achievable that we could copy, and suddenly everything would be rosy. And uh, here's what he said. The most important thing in the success of our church, and the growth of our church, has been this. The fact that the guy up front, the pastor of the church, is the demographic that we are targeting. In other words, when you sit in the audience and you look forward, the person who's in front of you, he reflects you. He's like a mirror image of you. You see yourself in him. You identify with him. His values are your values. The things that he says reflect the things that you too believe. And I hope for your sake that's not true of you this morning in this place because it would be really sad if if I were the mirror image of you. But this has a kind of wisdom to it, a kind of logic, certainly Uh, the part of me that has a background in marketing thought, well, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. So the key to to a successful church is to find a pastor who is is the demographic, who looks like the people that you're trying to reach. That seemed brilliant. But reflect on it for a moment. Reflect on, on what's really being said there. That what we're looking for in leadership is not an example to follow, but what we're looking for is a kind of mirror to show ourselves back to ourselves. I always find it striking. Think about that moment that happens sometimes if if you find yourself at a, a church where, uh, maybe watching this on television as I sometimes do, but, but a church where they've got you know these big screens and during worship the cameraman is sort of panning through the crowd of the worshipers. So you're actually seeing projected on the screen the people who are offering their worship to God. And in that moment, there's an interesting thing happening. And it's an unintentional thing. But it's, it's ironically the worshipers beholding themselves in worship. Right? Their worship is directed towards the image of themselves in that moment. Uh, it's not intentional. But it's one of those things that when you see it, it makes you think, uh, where did we go wrong? 
a few years ago, I read Michael Pollan's book, In Defense of Food. It's this journalist who wrote about uh, what you should eat. Uh, it turns out I don't eat any of the things he says you should, and most of the things he says you, you shouldn't. But one thing stuck out with me, uh, his rules for eating, like if you wanted to eat healthily, one of the things he said was you should never eat anything that your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. As long as you do that, as long as you don't eat anything that's that's not something she would have considered edible, you, you'll be okay. And it struck me that sometimes we need a similar logic in our worship. Like, would the Christians of the past show up at our services even though they were meant to be worship services? I don't know. Even when we have leaders, they don't guide us so much as they reflect us. But none of this would have made sense to Peter. None of this would have made sense. It wouldn't have rung true with his experience. Remember, Peter had had this conversation with Jesus, this, this frustrating conversation where Jesus had, had asked him again and again, do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter had said, yes, yes, Jesus had answered, essentially calling him to the life of a shepherd. This is in John 21. Do you love me? Jesus asks three times. And every time Peter affirms, he's told, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter is being called to shepherd. And he's being called by the same Savior, the same Jesus, who when he spoke of himself, called himself the good shepherd. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Interesting, too, that when Jesus' birth was announced, the Messiah who's been promised is coming into the world. He's coming in to establish His kingdom. The messengers from God, the angels, enter into the world to announce His coming not to the other kings, not to the powerful, but to the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night. The guys up at night when everybody else is asleep, dead to the world, the guys shepherding their flocks, they're the ones the angels tell. There's clearly something near to God's heart in this idea of a shepherd. When the people of Israel asked God for a king, first they got a bad one. They got a bad one, Saul, and he was bad because he was exactly what you'd expect a king to be. Like he was taller than everybody else, he looked the part, and he acted the part as well, where power was concerned. But when God was done with Saul, He answered that request for a king, and this time he gave Israel a good king. When God wanted a good king, he turned to a shepherd. David, King David, he put a crown on the head of a shepherd. And that shepherd, when he wrote his psalms, in Psalm 23, spoke of his God as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This idea of shepherding is so wrapped up in the DNA of of, of leadership in the church. It's important, so it's not surprising Peter's words here to the elders of the church when he says to them, just as Jesus had said to him, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock. There's a couple of points here that I just want to make with uh, the way Peter is speaking here in those first two verses. Peter makes an assumption about the church. That the church is led by elders. Literally, in the Greek, by presbyters. 
pardon me as a Presbyterian for pointing that out, but he's writing to presbyters and telling presbyters to shepherd the flock. It's interesting, when he tells them to exercise oversight, the, the, the word that is used there, it's episcopuntes, which is maybe a little familiar to you. It's where we get the word episcopal from, bishop, that sort of thing. So literally, when he's speaking to this group of elders, this group of presbyters, the action they're meant to undertake is bishoping. Again, forgive my Presbyterianism, I just want to gently suggest to you that this is the way the church was back then. Like the synagogue before it, it was led by a group of elders, not by a single uh, man, not by a, a CEO, as it were, but by a group of elders collectively. And entrusted to those elders with this, was this work of oversight, this work of bishoping. And interestingly, Peter, who, as you know, was an apostle, who was uh, in the forefront of the apostles, who was the first at Pentecost to proclaim the gospel with power from the Holy Spirit. When he addresses the elders of the church, he refers to himself as a fellow elder, a fellow presbyter. Not as their overlord. Not as the one who has the right and the authority to dictate to them what they will do. But he appeals to them as fellow elders to shepherd the flock. Like him, they are elders, presbyters. Like him, they bear witness to the sufferings of Christ. And like him, they will partake in their share of the coming glory. So on the one hand, you see the New Testament church, it does possess this leadership structure, just as the synagogue had. It possesses this, this um, oversight of elders, of presbyters. And yet, that structure is not nearly so uh, developed and hierarchical as it would later become as the church progressed and the rise of uh, bishops as princes of the church emerged. So do we need leaders? Honestly, so much in our upbringing and our culture, so much in our experience says to us that the answer must be no. And yet, Peter thinks the answer is yes. We do need leaders. God has called us as his flock to be led, to be shepherded. And so the question becomes, what kind of leaders, what kind of leadership is it that we actually need? Now, Peter is going to tell us one thing that elders should do, and then he's going to give us two ways they should do it, contrasted with two ways that they should not do it. So the role of the elder in verse 2, is to exercise oversight. It's that word before, episcopuntes. Exercise oversight. That's the business of shepherds. That's what shepherds do, right? Keeping watch over the flock, exercising oversight, keeping an eye on what's going on, guiding when necessary, feeding the sheep, leading the flock to water. This is what shepherds do. Psalm 23 David says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But think about what that means. Sometimes you think of, of like the rod and staff of correction as a comfort. If I go off the rails, the elders will come along and, and, and bring me back in line, which is true, ideally. But here, this is actually spoken in terms of, of reasons why I won't fear. I won't have fear because 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, protect from predators. The rod and staff of the shepherd are a comfort to the sheep, but they're not a comfort to wolves and predators. They, They strike them. That's the role of an elder in the church of Christ. To shepherd, to oversee, to, to help out when possible. And, and there's a difference between good shepherding and bad shepherding. Here's how you recognize a bad shepherd. Here's where I get nervous. I'm giving you the checklist, basically. Here's how you can tell. Here's how you can tell if we're really bad at this shepherding. So, first of all, Peter says, like, a bad shepherd acts under compulsion. Under compulsion, compunction. He acts, in other words, out of a sense of duty. He does what he does because it's his job to do it. He, he is just taking orders, so to speak. And I'll confess, I think most of us could, could relate to this, that there are certainly times when the only reason that I've done the right thing instead of the wrong thing is out of a sense of duty. It's not what I wanted to do wasn't my preference. There was certainly no joy in doing the right thing. I wasn't like, like, like motivated to do the right thing, but I was like, oh, I have to. I have to. I have to do the right thing. Um, it's what God expects. It's what people expect. So you do it out of compulsion. That's what being a bad shepherd looks like. Acting out of a sense of duty. You know, a lot of times we, we think of that as, as a, a good thing, right? So few people actually now act out of a sense of duty that when occasionally someone does it, you're relieved. You know, like, like ordinarily you wouldn't have helped me, but out of a sense of duty you helped me, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. God's not grateful for that, though. He's not grateful that you did what was expected of you. You did your duty. It's a bad shepherd who merely acts under compulsion. Here's another sign of a bad shepherd. He works for shameful gain. He works for shameful gain. It's true that, uh, as, as Paul says, the, the workman is worthy of his hire. Like, don't muzzle the ox, all of that sort of thing, right? Um, but, but, to do the work of Christ, to shepherd the flock of Christ for gain, for incentive, that's the sign of a bad shepherd. In other words, to be motivated by the thought of reward. Think of it that way. The bad shepherd is there for you, especially if you give a lot to the church. The bad shepherd is always there for you, especially if you're well-connected. And those connections can lead to to something good for the church. The, The bad shepherd is always available if there's something in it for him. Now, ordinarily speaking, like that's why we go to work, right? We work to pay the bills, and so it makes sense. Shepherds have bills, too, that, that maybe they would be more prone to doing the kind of ministry that, that gives a reward than doing the other kind. But Peter says that's being a bad shepherd. Like, if you see that in the church, if you see that the elders of the church are more attentive to those who give generously than those who cannot. If you see that the elders of the church show preference to one over another, then you can know those are bad shepherds. Those are not shepherds serving as they're called to do. Thirdly, 
You can know a bad shepherd because he domineers over those in his charge. A bad shepherd likes to be obeyed. He doesn't like to be questioned. You recognize him as a kind of sanctified bully. If you've been around the church long enough, you've known such shepherds. Like men who, who didn't like having their word questioned, didn't like having to explain themselves, who were always leading with their office, their authority. That's bad shepherding. That's not what shepherds of the church are called to be like. That's actually a betrayal of the office. In contrast, Peter says, you can recognize a good shepherd this way. First, he acts willingly the way God wants. He takes joy in shepherding. There's a joy that he has in exercising the oversight that is given to him. He likes to do it. And he does it eagerly without a thought of gain. The reason he does it isn't because some people might be able to reward him for what he does. The reason he does it is because he seeks something farther, something in the glory of Christ, not glory from other people. In the eyes of a good shepherd, you don't rate higher because you've put more money in the plate. It's not what you have that motivates a good shepherd. It's what you need. The good shepherd leads by example rather than blunt force. It's how Christ led. We're called to, to follow the example of Christ. So surely Christ's under-shepherds are called to do the same, to set the same example, to strive after Christ. Simply put, Peter exhorts the elders to be motivated by just one thing. There's just one thing that should motivate the shepherds of the church. It's the glory of Christ. In other words, it's the exact same thing that should motivate all of us. We're no different. The glory of Christ is what should motivate us. He says towards the end of our passage, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's not talking about a special prize for people who are elders in the church. The unfading crown of glory is the inheritance of all who are in Christ. That glory belongs to all. What motivates the elder to serve selflessly is the same thing that should motivate Every believer. It's interesting too, when we hear words like that, crown of glory, crown of glory, we get this picture in our minds of sort of the prizes we can amass in heaven. We talked about this at the youth group Q&A a few weeks ago. The question was, um, you know, how do you accumulate crowns? Well, some people have more than others in heaven and that sort of thing. It's interesting here that, that Peter is speaking metaphorically. When he speaks about a crown, he's speaking about the kind of uh, uh, laurel wreath that a winner is awarded. And what he's saying is that the, the reward, the, the winning, so to speak, will be the glory of Christ, will be received. The, the, the glory is literal, it's real. The crown is metaphorical. And what that means is that ultimately, the way elders shepherd the flock is by doing everything for God's glory. Not to win a special reward, but to set an example for every believer to follow. While keeping their eyes fixed on every believer's reward. So now the question is, how are we going to follow? If we need leaders, and the kind of leaders we need are these kind, this Christ-like kind. The question is, how do we follow? 
Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when we ask the question, how are we going to follow, there's really a twofold answer. First, the flock must be subject to the elders. Now, Peter is using language here, older and younger, contrasting elders and flock. You might think of it as a difference in uh, maturity or calling more so than age. I think there is a presumption that elders are older, but we know there are exceptions to that rule. For example, Timothy. But the distinction Peter is making is one to do with maturity, with calling. So it's possible for you to be older in years and yet younger in the context here. He says younger should be subject to older, that the younger should be subject to the elders. If you're a member of the flock, if you're part of Christ's church, you really are meant to be subject to the elders. The last of the five membership vows that you take when you join the church And the one that I would say is probably the biggest sticking point for us now is when we promise to submit ourselves to the government of the church to study its peace and purity. Because we have a hard time submitting ourselves to any government, even our own, let alone of elders. And yet here you see that there's an expectation that Peter has that this will be so. That he says to the younger, submit yourselves to the elders. In order to be subject to the elders in our day and age, we have to come to terms with those biases we talked about earlier. Because I would say we have blinders on when it comes to this. It, It seems so obvious to us that this isn't the way the church should be. That when we find authors in Scripture speaking as if it is, we have to question whether what's obvious to us is in fact true. So that's the first of, of, of these twofold answers. But, but the second, I think, is equally, maybe even more important. If first, the flock must be subject to the elders. Secondly, we must all be humble toward one another. And let's be honest, some of us hate the idea of authority in the church because we've seen so much bad shepherding. So many examples of why it's a bad idea. If Being a shepherd means running the lives of the flock, micromanaging people. It just seems like a bad idea. And there are some people who really love that idea and really want that to be what God has called us to. Really want shepherds who micromanage, who give you all the answers, who tell you what to do in every situation. But if you hear all that Peter is saying, And you think he's talking about some kind of an authoritarian hierarchy, a a top-down power structure. There is something that you're missing. Because remember, he's already said that domineering over the flock is a sign of the bad shepherd, not the good shepherd. That domineering that we associate with the exercise of power is not. It's an abuse of power in the eyes of God. Peter calls elders and flock alike to mutual humility. Mutual humility. This is the same new approach to power that you find in Ephesians 5 and 6 that you find Peter earlier touching on lightly in 1 Peter 3 
where a lot of the ways we think power is meant to be used are undermined by the example of Christ who domineered over no one and instead humbled himself. Abuse of power flows from human pride. Thinking too highly of ourselves, thinking we're better than others. This is where all abuse of of power, of privilege flows from. Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34 and says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He hasn't called anyone to be proud and domineering in the church. Instead, he requires mutual humility of us all. So the real question isn't, how are we going to follow the elders? The question is, how are we going to follow Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep? How will we follow him? Will we organize our churches as he has told us to? Or will we do it our own way? Will we exercise authority the way we want to? Or will we do it as he commands us to do? Will we follow leaders who merely mirror ourselves back to us? Or will we follow those who point to Christ as the mirror? Glory is coming. All that we do, we do for the glory of Christ, with our eyes fixed on that glory. We're called to live, to work for that glory. One day, Peter says, it will be revealed. We will have a share in it. We will be partakers in that glory. The question in the meantime is, is merely, how will we live? How will we pursue our various callings, the work that God has given us? How will we do that for the glory of Christ? We need a shepherd. And in Jesus, we have one. We need shepherds to live for glory and to set an example for us, which is why we need to lift them up in prayer, because they are as fallen and as broken as anyone else. We need to submit to the elders that Christ gives us and treat one another with humility. We can have no better picture of this than we have in the example of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ who had all authority given to him and yet humbled himself in an unimaginable way in order to become one of us and to pour himself out for us. This is the shepherd of the church. This is the example of shepherding that we are called to follow. The good shepherd is the shepherd who follows after Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.